You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here today. Isn't it funny how different things seem when you're finally through it, when it's finally over, when that storm has passed? Isn't it funny how different things seem? So this past summer, um, I read through some of the Chronicles of Narnia books again, and if you're unfamiliar with the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, the best way that I could describe them to you is that they are seven theology books cleverly disguised as children's stories. And there's one of them called The Horse and His Boy, which tells the story of a young slave boy named Shasta. Shasta escapes his abusive master and heads off for a better country, chasing something that he believes will be better and good. And along the way, he has this very perilous journey where he is often alone and afraid, exposed and vulnerable, tired and terrified. There's this beautiful scene near the end of the book where Shasta gets lost in an overwhelming fog. He can't see the way ahead of him, the way behind him. He has no idea where he's at. He has no idea how to get out of this place. Then he's suddenly aware of this large, mysterious presence over his shoulder. You ever have that feeling? And he has no name for it. And finally, when he can't stand it anymore, Shasta turns around to confront this presence. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. It was pitch dark, and Shasta could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. But what he could hear was breathing. This invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. Who are you? He said, barely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak. I was the lion who comforted you. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave your horses new strength. I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Shasta knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of his saddle and fell at its feet. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Isn't it funny? How different things seem when you're finally through it. 
So tell me if you've ever had this experience. I have. You're, you're going through life and you're facing something that's unknown. You're facing something that's intimidating, something that has you really scared. And when you take your first step forward, you go, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't even know how this conversation is going to go. I don't know how this relationship is going to work out. I'm facing a puzzle that I cannot see the solution for. And then later you get through it, and with the wisdom of providence and hindsight, you look back and you go, oh, (laughs) that's what you were doing back there. That's what that season of my life was about. Anybody ever had that experience? Sure you have. All you have to do is live long enough. go through enough stuff, and you go, huh, maybe there is a plan after all. Well, this is week two in our quick four-week series to the Old Testament book of Esther. And so we're kind of jumping in midstream here. Last week, we met three of our key characters, a young, egotistical king named Xerxes, his beauty pageant-winning queen, Esther, and her wise old cousin, Mordecai. And even though Xerxes isn't exactly the good guy, we haven't really met a villain in this story yet. Well, that changes this week. (laughs) Things are about to get complicated, and if I could borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis's Narnia, the fog is about to get very dense. Xerxes runs the world, his kingdom and influence are growing, and God is nowhere to be found, seemingly. So, a little bit of context for you. Esther has been queen for five years now at Esther chapter 3. There's a five-year gap between chapters 2, 1 and 2, where we were last week, and chapter 3 and 4, where we're going to be this week. And it's been a pretty busy five years for young King Xerxes. Just a quick story to sort of set the tone for where we're going to be this morning. Wanting to do his daddy Darius proud, young King Xerxes goes on a rampage. And he actually sets his sights on the one kingdom that his dad could never conquer, the kingdom of Greece, which would mean crossing from Asia into Europe. And if he's going to do that, he's got to cross this thin stretch of water called the Hell's Pond, three-quarters of a mile across. This is the most contested piece of water in the ancient world. And so Darius, in characteristic overconfidence, is not a big deal. I've got this. I've got a 300,000-plus man army. Nothing is stopping me from conquering Greece. And so what does he do? He sends a construction team ahead of his army to build a pontoon bridge to cross this three-quarter mile an hour stretch. One problem. The army catches up to the construction team, and by the time they get there, they realize that a storm has just come through the day before, and all that's left in the Hell's Pond is floating debris and a more than slightly nervous construction crew. How do you think Xerxes responds? Not well. First, he beheads the construction crew and the engineers responsible, and then, seriously, he has his generals whip the sea like with whips, get down in the ocean and whip the sea 300 times as if to teach it who is king. You can look it up. This is real history. Then they rebuild the bridge, they cross it, they march to Athens and burn Athens to the ground. Kind of gives you a pretty clear picture of the guy that we're dealing with, doesn't it? If you want something, grab it. If it stands in your way, Conquer it. And if it won't listen to you, destroy it. Hold on to those ideas for just a few minutes. 
So by Esther chapter 3, Xerxes is 12 years into his reign. He's 48 years old and he is in his groove. This is like the sweet spot of the bat. If he's a CEO, Xerxes has enough momentum behind him to impress seasoned stockholders, but he's got enough vision in front of him to motivate potential investors. But he's about to make a political appointment that changes everything. Esther chapter 3 Take a look in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, same dude, promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king is so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai... Dun, dun, dun. did not bow down or pay homage. You felt that, right? The thing I love about God's word is it teaches me how I should read it. <laughs> this is God sharpening the focus and God raising the tension because the plot is about to thicken here. So a couple of things for you note-takers. There's actually three reasons why Mordecai does not bow down to Haman. First reason is the political reason. Haman is this opportunistic little weasel. And you're going to come to see this more and more over the coming chapters. Like, the guy is just kind of a slime ball, and Mordecai cannot stomach him. Okay, so there's just, like, political stuff going on here. You'll see this. That's the first reason. The second reason is the religious reason. Now, even though Mordecai has spent most of his adult life in Persia, Mordecai is religiously Jewish. And you don't go bowing down to people flippantly. This grates against the grain of Mordecai's soul. Everything he's been taught, you don't do that. Now, up until now, Mordecai has kind of kept quiet about his faith, just kind of keeping the peace, Try not to ruffle feathers, right? Fulfilling that maxim of two things you don't talk about at dinner. What are they? Politics and religion, right? And so if you had to reimagine Mordecai into a contemporary context, this is the guy that goes to church every couple of weeks, but like, eh, you know, he's kind of on the bubble. He loves God, but like God's not really a big part of his life yet. You know, he has faith, but he's not really acting on it yet. Mordecai, it's interesting, at this point in his journey, you look at him, he doesn't show much concern for Esther in the king's harem. He doesn't, like, he doesn't even raise a finger when she eats the king's food and enjoys the king's <clears throat> company. He even asks Esther to conceal her Jewishness. And so this guy's kind of like, where is he spiritually? There's a third reason, though. You've got the political reason, the religious reason, and, the, and what I would say, the personal reason. The personal reason. Back in chapter 2, we learned that Mordecai came from the tribe of Benjamin. And then here in verse 1, we learned that Haman is an Agagite. Now that means nothing to most of us here, but quick backstory: When God's people were slaves in Egypt, God lets them go. They come up into the promised land, and Haman's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, a guy named King Agag, led a surprise slaughter against God's people. So Mordecai and Haman, their families are like mortal enemies. This is like a Hatfield-McCoy thing, like generations deep. Like, your grandpa didn't like my grandpa. I don't like you and you don't like me. We're on two sides of the creek. Let's just keep it that way. So what happens? Take a look in verse 3. Then the king's servants 
who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Like, they're just trying to pull this out of him. And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. told you he's a weasel. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of King Xerxes. So this is like the Holocaust 2,500 years before it happened. This is sick and this is evil. Remember Xerxes' foreign policy? If you want it, grab it. If it's in your way, conquer it. And if it still won't listen to you, destroy it. Funny thing about leadership and culture, it's actually caught more than it is taught. So in the case of Haman, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. So ego-bruised Haman sits on his little mini throne, spins his little mini web. And knowing what we know now, don't you want to like reach through the pages and go, God, where are you? Like, these are your people. Are you going to let this happen? 900 miles away, a couple hundred years ago, you made all these great promises to your people. God, what are you going to do? How can you be so silent, God? Where'd you go, God? You ever ask that question about your own life? Sure you have. Take a look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast pur, that is, lots, before Haman day after day. Okay, so this is kind of like a mix between dice and tarot and like palm reading. It's like kind of all thrown into one. Twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are very different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. So that's a big ask. How does he sweeten the deal? And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So at this point, Haman wants three things. And for you note-takers, they all start with the letter A. Here you go. First thing that Haman wants is he wants assurance. This is verse 7. So Haman and all his cronies get together and they go, okay, we know what we need to do. We just got to seek the fates. We got to talk to our gods. We got to throw the dice, line up the tarot cards, and figure out how all this is going to go. When do we strike? That's the question. And he wants assurance. It's really interesting right now. Haman is consulting his gods, who don't exist, to seek the extermination of a people who God has already laid claim to. Like, you see how this is going to go. But he wants the assurance. Second thing he wants is he wants animosity. Did you notice how he positions the Jewish people before the king? He raises just enough suspicion to incite a little anger, but not enough suspicion 
to really make Xerxes question. Ah, there's, there's these people, king. It's not really to your benefit to keep them. He wants animosity. But then the third thing that he wants is he wants authority. He wants authority. This is him basically going, King, look, let me, give me whatever, come on, if you just give me the means, I will make sure that they go away. And you know what? That's really expensive. I will contribute 10,000 talents of silver to this whole cause. If you had to contextualize that, that's well over a million dollars today. So this is him going, I'm going to contribute my entire family fortune to make sure this thing happens. So Xerxes gives him his signet ring, which is the ancient Persian presidential letterhead. (laughs) Two thumbs up and says, just go for it. Here, make it happen. And it's likely that Xerxes agrees so quickly because he just doesn't care what's going on. You see the irony here, don't you? In verse 13, the hammer falls. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the Persian mail system that five years earlier worked so quickly to try and get Xerxes, his queen, now works just as efficiently to exterminate her whole people. Meanwhile, Xerxes and Haman toast their success in the palace's personal private cigar lounge, and as pockets of the Persian empire are about ready to burn, spotlight focuses on one man, Mordecai. Can you imagine what this would have felt like? I mean, sirens blaring all over the place going, what in the world? This is all about to go down. What is going to happen? Come on, God, how long are you going to let this thing go? You could have stopped it way back here. <laughs> Take a look in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done. I love that. All that had been done. Like, this is already done. <laughs> How are you going to stop this one, God? When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Stop there for a minute. Do you feel this growing distance between Esther and her people? We're meant to. Every Jew within two million square miles, India to Ethiopia, every one of God's people is weeping and mourning and lamenting and crying. Sackcloth, what is that? It's like wearing a potato sack. 
This is not comfortable. The idea is like, I'm in mourning. I feel terrible. I might as well look terrible. Pouring ashes on your head. These are all signs of ancient mourning. But what's fascinating is Mordecai, who lives outside the king's palace, has every detail of what's going on. And here's Esther living inside the king's palace. She has no clue. But there's something that we need to see here. Back in verse 1, Mordecai tears his clothes, sackcloth, and ashes. Ancient symbols of mourning. Just this like deep, gut-wrenching, like, Lord, you better show up right now or we're going to die kind of pre-grief. You ever been in that spot? <laughs> Where you just go like, Lord, I can't deal with this anymore. Like, you've got to show up. And if you don't show up, oh, I'm out of gas. I got nothing else. You ever cried like that? Your circumstances in life ever put you in that position? You ever mourned the loss of something so deeply that you just don't even know what to say anymore? You just want to sit there and let it roll over you. When Esther finally hears about it, the text says that she's deeply distressed. And she does something really odd, right? She could have joined in the morning with her people. She could have said, all right, I'm Jewish. Let's take the mask off. These are my people. She could have done that, but she doesn't, not yet. She could have stepped up and said, look, I'm the queen. I can put a stop to this. This is a bridge too far. But she doesn't do that, not yet. What's she do instead? She sends Mordecai new clothes. You know what you need, cousin? You need a new robe. Here, take this, please. This will make everything better. Small detail, odd detail, but not as odd as what happens next. Mordecai refuses it. You catch that? It's right there in verse 4. Mordecai would not accept it. Now, if you just tore your robe and you're in mourning and your queen cousin sends you a new robe, you put it on, right? What's he communicating in this? Why does he send it back? What's he saying? Like, Mordecai, she's just trying to help, man. Like, she's trying to make everything better. She doesn't know what to do. Why are you trying to be such a stick in the mud? Here's what I think this is getting at. I don't want a new robe. A new robe is not going to fix this, cousin. There's way more at stake here than can be fixed by a new set of clothes. Cousin, we don't need clothes from the king's closet. We need rescue from the king's plan. And this is not the main point of the text, but it's worth pulling off here for just a second to ask this. How many of us would rather avoid the problems because we're scared of what our involvement might cost us? How many of us delay God's deliverance because we're too busy distracting ourselves with new robes? Vacation, new house, new spouse, retail therapy. And I get it because it's tempting to believe that like, if I can soothe myself with this stuff, then I don't have to deal with this. If I can get by with whatever's out here, I won't have to deal with what's in here. This is the guy who works 60 hours a week so he doesn't have to deal with his imploding marriage. 
This is the mom who runs to the wine cabinet because she has to face these feelings of inadequacy. This is me anytime I'm unwilling to acknowledge the real issue because I have the sneaking suspicion that my involvement is going to cost me more than I'm willing to pay. So when Mordecai returns the robe, he opens the door for Esther to understand that there is way more at stake here than she may have realized. A new robe is not going to fix this. But you, cousin... Maybe you have a part to play. He just leaves it sitting there. And all that pressure builds and builds until, as if by divine discomfort, sensing that costly involvement is better than comfortable avoidance, Esther makes her courageous move. And then comes the dialogue, the conversation on which the power of this entire book is hung and where the veil between God's providence and my responsibility comes paper thin and so with this newly returned robe, realizing what her involvement might mean, Esther sends a letter to Mordecai. And now just get this. This is when her faith shows up and grows up. Esther to Mordecai, verse 11. She says, look, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if a man or a woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's one law, to be put to death. You forgot this guy whipped the sea. He burned Athens to the ground. This is not a reasonable man. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to the king for 30 days. Like, look, Mordecai, I haven't seen the king for a month. And if I go in there, if I cross that threshold, if I get involved, I could be toast. Then Mordecai back to Esther, verse 13. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. And now here's where this gets painfully thin. Verse 14, listen to this beautiful, agonizing words. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Look, you're in danger if you go in. You're in danger if you don't. Door number one, you might get killed. Door number two, you might get killed. And as is so often the case in life, right, when we are torn between belief and unbelief, pick your tension. Pick your tension. Which way do you want to go? There's no getting out of life alive. What kind of tension do you want? And I love this because it's agonizingly beautiful. Like the writer awkwardly goes out of his way to not mention God as Mordecai subtly pushes Esther's potential purpose right in front of her face. Like, what do you think this is about, cousin? How do you think you got here? You think all this is coincidence? Somebody made you queen, somebody gave you the king's favor. Somebody puts you where you are, and who knows if the point of all of this, the lostness of a king's harem, the strangeness of a king's favor, and now the darkness of a king's edict. I just love how Mordecai calls all this out in Esther, and then comes her response. Check out verse 16. Here's what she says. I love this. Go. 
Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days. Whoa. Night and day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go into the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Hmm. All right. I'm in. I'm involved. I'm walking through the door. I don't know what this might mean, but I can't avoid it. I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but I know that it will. And if I perish, I perish. What great faith. Here's a really great definition of faith based on this little snippet into Esther's personal prayer life. Faith is belief plus unbelief acting on the belief part. Say that again. Faith is belief plus unbelief acting on the belief part. Don't you hear like the New Testament antecedent theology like cascading down through the ages? Remember the guy that met with Jesus? And he says, Lord, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. Because we live in this tension all the time, like every day, right? If I waited till all my unbelief was gone, that's not faith. That's like GPS, <laughs> Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's always this little fly in the ointment, right? This side of glory. (laughs) How often do we live there? Every day, especially in these uncertain times. Like, the door, you don't know. This door, I don't know. The only thing I do know, God, is you. And then you finally silently ask yourself, like, yeah, God, I don't know, is that enough? And if you find yourself asking that question, God, are you enough? That's exactly the point of Esther chapter 4. So how's this turn out? Well, you got to wait till next week. I know, I'm sorry. Here's, like, can't you hear like that old-timey radio voice? Like, tune in next week as our heroes. Right? You can go read it on your own. It's right there. It's in the Bible. You can read it. But we need to turn the page because we've got to get updated into this. Like, what does this mean? Like, why, why is this here? Why did God take the time to write this? What does this have to do with me? And what does this have to do with now? There's this crazy, terrible thing going around that I've, I've heard in recent years, and, um, and we need to take the time to correct it, and we're going to use Esther 3 and 4 to do it. And here's this little sentiment. Tell me if you've ever heard this. God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that? That is one of the most terrible, godless, small-minded paltry, pathetic things I've ever heard anybody say. God will never give you more than you can handle. Are you serious? Don't tell that to Esther. Don't tell that to Mordecai. Like, I guess initially maybe it's a little bit comforting, but long-term, all you get is a very small God. What kind of God would he have to be where his primary interest is celebrating Brandon Marshall's self-sufficiency? Gospel truth. God always gives me more than I can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle? Come on. What if the point of all of the crazy, what if the point of all of the crazy isn't God giving us answers to all the questions that we're asking, but what if the point of all of the crazy is that the questions we're asking would drive us to him? Because a God 
who answers every question I ask of him is a God too small for me to worship, but a God who welcomes me into his presence no matter what those questions are. I can get there. One of my mentors in seminary um, had this phrase, and he used to say it all the time. And at the time, I didn't really know what it meant because I was 22 and thought I knew everything. And now I'm 40 and know that I know nothing. But he used to say this thing all the time to those of us who were pastors and like training to be pastors and ready to go out there and like change the world for Jesus. Here's what he used to say. It's so good, and it's become richer um, just as I move through life. Here's what he used to say. There's a simplicity on this side of complexity that isn't worth a nickel. But there's a simplicity on that side of complexity that's worth your life. There's a simplicity on this side of complexity that's not worth a nickel, but there's a simplicity on that side of complexity that's worth your life. What does that even mean? When you're going through something tough, you know what the easiest thing to do is? Nothing. Just stay there. It's easy to avoid involvement. It's easy to stay on this side of the doorway. It's easy to bury my head in the sand, to stay on the sidelines, to remain unburdened. Because life brings us stuff, right? Stuff that makes us burdened. This is what life does. Like, let me just be your pastor here for a second. Like, I know there are some of you who are facing some really tough stuff right now. Like a problem that you don't have a solution for. You're asking a question that you don't know the answer for. You're feeling a tension. You don't know how this is going to work out. You didn't see this coming, but surprise, it's here. Life brought you something on the front porch of your world that you must now deal with. When you're faced with the overwhelming crazy, this thing called life, how many of you know that when you step up to the doorway, that's when your faith gets real, and in Esther's case, that's when your faith grows up? You can stay over here on this side of complexity. It's just not worth very much. Here's the principle. Sometimes, sometimes, God would rather bring you through than rescue you from. It's a very big statement, and it's worth thinking through. Sometimes, God would rather bring you through than rescue you from. This is the story over and over again in God's word. Like, think about Joseph, right? Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, and then God lifts him up, And he has this big love for his brothers. God brings him through, doesn't rescue him from. Moses, same deal. Moses, deposed prince of Egypt, and then he spends 40 years as a shepherd where he learns how to lead sheep. Then God raises him up so he can lead his people, go back to Pharaoh and say, hey, we're out of here. God brings him through, doesn't rescue him from. Even if you go to the Persian exile, Babylonian exile, this is Daniel's three friends in a fire. They won't bow the knee, literally throw into the fire. And then one of the king's... Reporters comes back and says, hey, those three guys you threw in the fire, um, they're not burning up. In fact, there's a fourth guy in there that looks like one of the son of our gods. What do you think that's about, right? God leads them through instead of rescuing them from. This is a constant drumbeat over and over and over again. But why is this the biblical narrative? Why does God do this? That's the question I want to ask because through is not fun. I'm looking for the eject button, Right? What's he trying to teach me by telling me the same story over and over and over again? What can I only see if I go through it? That as long as I am on this side of the pain, 
As long as I am on this side of the complexity, as long as I am on this side of all the trouble, the suffering, and yes, potentially persecution, as long as I am on this side, staying here, resisting everything, risking nothing and resting comfortably, as long as I stay here, it's very easy to convince myself that I don't need him. But it's better for me. It's better for me to learn how trustworthy God is than for me to learn how trustworthy I am. It's better that he undoes my self-sufficiency and replaces it with God-dependency. It's better that I learn how to celebrate what he can do and not what I can do because it's on the journey through that I learn that God is good. It's on the way through that I learn that he is enough. It's on the way through the pain, through the problem, through the complexity. That's where we meet a God who is not only great but also profoundly good to you. Let me get dangerously close to this. I think, I think this principle... That sometimes God wants to push you through or bring you through rather than rescue you from. I think this principle is true not just for us personally, but I think it's true for us corporately. I think there are hard days coming for the church, and not just our church. I mean the church, okay? And you read the same cultural narrative that I do, and maybe you raise an eyebrow and you kind of, well, man, what's going to happen? I think we're going to have to ask questions and navigate through complexities that we never, ever thought that we would ever have to think about. And so when those days come and those complexities are here, you have a choice. You can either run from the complexity, we can bury our heads in the sand and pretend it's another time and another place, or we can run into the complexity and watch God grow our faith. And my word for you personally, just as for us as a church, is that maybe if you're facing something like right now, Sunday, November 7th, or in this yet-to-get-here tension that we don't really even recognize, my word for you is really a question. If God was good here, don't you think he'll be good here? He hasn't changed. He sees you and he knows you and he loves you. There's no part of your story that is strange to him. And he cares for you. He is enough to get you through so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. Our deacons are going to come and we're going to pass elements. But just a couple of thoughts just to maybe center our attention on this. Before they were in Persian exile here in Esther, way back when they were slaves in Egypt, God's people gathered in their homes for an event that would be called Passover. Passover. They didn't even have yeast in the bread because they didn't have time for the bread to rise because in the morning they were getting up and they were headed out of Egypt and into freedom. Passover is God's way of saying, I am enough to lead you through. Most of us think about the Lord's Supper years later when Jesus gathered to celebrate Passover with his 12 closest friends. When he broke bread and served the wine and he said, this is my body and this is my blood. Remember me when you do this. This is Jesus saying, I am enough to get you through. So here's a question before we take the elements and have this memorial meal together. Do you really believe that? I'm not talking about like the cultural tensions and what you should or shouldn't do, anything like that. I'm actually talking about something much bigger. I'm talking about your eternity. Do you believe that Jesus is enough for you? 
You're trying to add what he's done. You're trying to be good little boy, good little girl, trying to behave, earn some cosmic points with God? Or have you given up and said, Lord, I I can't do this on my own. I need you to get me through everything because I can't face it. I'm not enough, and I'm good saying I'm not enough. Have you come to that spot? Every one of us is born in sin, and we can't fix it on our own. So we say, Lord, help us. It's Christ and Christ alone. And so when we take this bread and this juice here in a little bit, this is a declaration saying, Jesus, you're enough. You're enough. You're enough. You're enough to get me through it. I'm going to keep my eyes on you, and I'm not going to get distracted. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.